Welcome to Archways Western Civilization History Podcast. In our podcast, we look for the best of the West and discuss the stories, events, themes, and people that made the West different from the rest. I was watching Ben-Hur the other night with my wife, and she was saying how surprised she was that chariot races were so violent. I told her, oh, oh honey, it's Hollywood. If they were this violent historically, there's no way anyone would have done it. Besides, don't you remember my Gladiator podcast episodes? On average, 80% of Gladiators would survive in a given match, and they'd only have to fight four or five times a year. It's probably the same with chariot races. She nodded, but then she asked me, Are you sure? Well, to be frank, I wasn't entirely sure, and so I decided to research chariot races. The truth turned out to be far more complex, exciting, and shocking than either of us expected. Spoiler alert, like every argument with my wife, she was right and I was less right. So strap up your horses and get ready to hear about a sport with more high-octane, heart-stopping action than March Madness, the Super Bowl, and the Grand Prix combined. Chariot racing was a classical Greek and Roman custom that involved two-wheeled vehicles pulled by two, four, or six-horse teams. Four-horse teams, known as quadrigae, were the most common. There were normally four to six chariots competing in a single race, consisting of seven laps around the circus. Kirkus is the Latin word for ring and refers to the circular arenas where the races would be held. Archaeologists have discovered the remains of 65 of these stadiums. The races were around 8 minutes long, action-packed, and death-defying, with the chariots reaching typical speeds of 22 miles per hour, 35 kph, and up to 45 miles per hour, 72 kph, on the straights. The racing chariots were lightweight and fragile, and were very easily smashed in collisions. To add more chaotic energy to this, the horses were specially bred to be as fast and powerful as possible. This made them very high-strung and unpredictable. According to worldhistory.org, quote, the majority of horses used were stallions. These race horses were bred on private and imperial stud farms in North Africa, Cappadocia, Sicily, Spain, and Thessaly. The race horses were stocky in build and comparable to a large pony of the present day. Pliny the Elder notes that, though horses may be broken as two years old for other services, racing in the circus does not claim them before five. These horses could compete on the track up to the age of 20 years before being sent to stud. Close quote. And so, winning a chariot race not only took incredible strength, endurance, and strategy, but also superb horse breeding and horsemanship. The earliest known chariot races, like gladiator fights, were associated with funerals. The funeral of Patroclus in the Iliad is the very first reference to one. In later centuries, chariot races became prominent features of the ancient Olympic Games and other Greek religious festivals. The Romans, of course, expanded this tradition to ludicrous extremes, hosting chariot races on triumphs and non-festive days as well, ratcheting up a once or twice a year event into a 57 times a year event, and then later a 135 day a year event. For context, there are 23 Formula One Grand Prix each year, which amounts to just 46 days of racing. The Roman poet Juvena, who lived between AD 55 and 138, complained, the people which formerly gave military power, high offices, legions, all, now contains itself, and eagerly desires two things only, panem et kirkenses, bread and circus games. As Juvenal alludes to here, the circuses were the national distraction that put athletes on a higher pedestal than military and government leaders. 
which made circuses very important for aspiring politicians to use because if you put on a great chariot race, the people will adore and remember you. For this reason, the Roman and Byzantine emperors often had to make appearances at the Circus Maximus and the Hippodrome, respectively. Of course, some emperors did more than just an obligatory appearance. Caligula and Nero were obsessed with the races. Byzantine Emperor Justinian also was a huge fan. He met his mistress, turned wife, Theodora, at a circus where she was originally a circus stripper. Her father, Acacius, was the Hippodrome's bear keeper. Anyway, these grand arenas in their respective capitals of Rome and Constantinople were the ultimate symbols of imperial power. The Circus Maximus, whose name means largest circus, boasted 150,000 seats, while the Hippodrome, whose name means the horse course, held 100,000 seats. The Spinas, the middle parts of the tracks that the racers would circle, were decorated with bronze statues of emperors, gods, horses, and heroes, along with ancient obelisks imported from Egypt. In Constantinople's Hippodrome, exquisite works of art also adorned the center. Rome got to the point where they could have 24 races in one day. According to worldhistory.org, modern estimates suggest that 700 to 800 horses were required for a day's racing. Sometimes more than a thousand horses would run in a single day. To make things more interesting, the Romans established four principal race teams, the Reds, the Whites, the Blues, and the Greens. Each team had its own racers, chariots, attendants, scouts, stables, breeding farms, and hundreds and hundreds of horses. These teams evoked great fervor among the Roman populace. Juvenal notes that if the Greens lost, the whole city would be downcast, as if some great national defeat had occurred. By the time of the Byzantine Empire, the teams had consolidated into just the Blues, who had absorbed the Whites, and the Greens, who had absorbed the Reds. Some scholars suggest that these teams evolved into more than just fandoms, becoming political and religious factions all their own, representing conservatism and orthodoxy, the blues, versus populism and monophysitism, which is the greens. Funny story about these teams. In AD 447, with the walls of Constantinople in ruins due to an earthquake, a horde of Huns had decided to invade the country and wanted to capture Constantinople for themselves. The Byzantine emperor, Theodosius II, ordered a prefect named Constantine Flavius to repair the walls within a few months. Yet it took nine years to build them. How was he going to fix them in just a few months? Well, Constantine brilliantly decided to leverage the fanaticism of the chariot teams in order to complete the walls. He put the fans of the Blues in charge of the walls from the Gate of Blackernai to the Gate of Meriandrian, and the Greens were in charge of the walls from the Gate of Meriandrian to the Sea of Marmara. Whoever's fans completed their section of wall first would be declared the winner and get all the glory. Over 16,000 fans from both teams showed up, and with the zeal only sports fans can muster, they completed the walls and cleaned the moat in just 60 days. Seeing the completed walls, the Huns decided to turn back and leave the Byzantines alone. Now that you know about the history behind the chariot races, circuses, and teams, let's talk about what a typical race day looked like. After a morning of frantic gambling and placing bets with the people seated around you, the races officially began with a sacred procession. 
Priests would carry the images of the gods across the town and then circle the track. There was religious significance tied to the races, as Apollo, god of the sun, dragged the sun around the earth with his four-horse chariot and racing his partner Luna, who dragged the moon behind her. The procession of the gods was followed by magistrates, athletes, dancers, attendants, and the charioteers joyously marching across the track. Placards with the name of each chariot racer and horses were presented to the audience as the charioteers walked or rode in. The audience went wild when they saw their favorite teams, horses, and racers show up. The circus track then was occasionally coated with sparkling metal flakes that represented the colors of the competing teams. This made for a dramatic flurry of confetti in the team colors when the chariots raced past. After that, the teams cast lots to decide which charioteer got to pick his lane first. Once that was decided and everyone got to their lanes, the horses were shut behind gates and held in stalls with their chariots and charioteers. The horses would get very antsy in here, and so attendants remained in the stalls to help them stay calm until the start signal. Occasionally, agitated horses broke down the gates and started racing. But that was obviously not supposed to happen. At the Circus Maximus, all 12 stalls had gates operated by a single lever. When the race patron dropped a handkerchief, giving the signal to start, the gates for each racer opened up simultaneously. With 12 stalls and 12 lanes, each of the four factions could field three racers. With the race begun, the charioteers were required to remain in their lanes until the nearest end of the divider. After that, they could battle for the best positions. Many strategies formed around what were the best positions. There was ukupawit et wikit, which means to seize the lead from the beginning and win, or primisit et wikit, which meant uh, to hang back, let the others battle it out, and then seize the lead in the end. The charioteers coordinated with their one or two other teammates in order to discombobulate their opponents. One teammate would focus on clearing a path for his teammate by flustering and forcing the opponents to the sides. Each team also had support staff helping in the race. There were the outriders, who were coaches that rode along on horseback shouting advice to the racers, and there were the sparsers. They were the staff members that threw water at the horses in order to keep them cool. There were also team attendants who would run out and help clear wreckage and rescue accident victims. In a weird way, these were the forerunners to modern-day pit crews. The seven anti-clockwise laps were tracked using large, sculpted eggs. These were later replaced by the bronze, dolphin-shaped lap counters seen in Ben-Hur. The Byzantines eventually reduced the number of laps to five. On the last lap, the victor would be the first to cross the white finish line, after which they would be saluted and hailed by trumpeters. Then they would climb the stairs into the private box of the patron to collect their prize. They received a palm of victory, a crown they could wear on their head, and the purse of gold from the patron of the games. If the games were at the Circus Maximus or the Hippodrome, this patron would be the emperor. The actors and ha animal handlers, like Theodora and her dad, would then perform shows in between the races, meaning that you could spend a whole day at the races and there would never be a dull moment. So, how much would the gift of the purse be? According to a poet named Marshall, a first century Roman poet, he thought it was enough to make him very jealous. He grumbled that they make as much as 15 bags of gold for winning a single race. 
and this was true. Successful charioteers could bring in tens of thousands of sesterces a race, which is enough to pay ten soldiers' salaries for a year, or enough to pay marshals' tutoring salary for a year. This essentially made victorious charioteers instant millionaires in today's money. The funerary inscriptions of various charioteers mark how unfathomably wealthy some of them became. One racer, named Crescens, with his horse Circus, Acceptor, Delicatus, and Cotinus, raced for nine years together, winning 1,558,346 sesterces. Unfortunately, he died on the track at age 22. Marcus Aurelius Paulinices won 739 victory palms in his career, three purses worth 40,000 sesterces, 26 purses worth 30,000, and 11 purses of gold. He was 29 when he died. His brother Marius won 125 victory palms and won the 40,000 sesterces prize twice and was 20 when he died. Scorpus, who played for all four teams, won 2,048 races and 15 bags of gold. He died at age 26. According to thecollector.com, quote, the greatest charioteer of the ancient world and the wealthiest sportsman ever was Gaius Apuleius Diocles, who lived in the second century CE. Diocles won 1,462 of 4,257 races, and more importantly, he retired in good health. When he retired, Diocles' total winnings amounted to nearly 36 million sesterces, which was a sum sufficient to feed the entire city of Rome for a year, or to pay for the entire Roman army for the fifth of a year. It is estimated that Diocles won the equivalent of $15 billion in today's money. Close quote. For perspective, Michael Jordan was paid only $93 million as a player for the Bulls and the Wizards. Even today, he's only worth $2 billion, and that's just mostly from his businesses and shoe sales. Diocles won $15 billion. The horses also became rich and famous, with fans keeping detailed statistics of their favorite horses' names, breeds, pedigrees, and progeny. The best horses sired many, many children. Despite the fame and fortune from the funerary inscriptions, we can see how dangerous these races were for the riders. Many of them died in their 20s. The most dangerous part of the race was the turns at the rounded parts of the Hippodrome where flimsy carts would crash into each other and jostle each other for the same real estate on the inner lane. This led to frequent skids and crashes. Because of this, the meanest and strongest horses would often be placed toward the inner lane and the fastest, most agile horses would be placed closer to the outside lanes. Oftentimes, riders would wrap the reins around their waists to free up their whip hand this allowed them to steer mostly by shifting their body weight with the occasional course corrections from their left hand. But this meant that if they were ever bumped or cajoled, they'd be flung off their chariot and dragged through the dirt by their thundering horses. Because of this, charioteers had to carry a knife with them to cut themselves loose. But often it wouldn't be enough. Sometimes, if there was a spectacularly bad crash, it would be called a naufragia, meaning shipwreck. Horses were brought down with a multitude of intruding legs entering the wheels. Even the straightaways presented their own challenges. The axles would smoke because the speeds were too high. 
People in the audience would also throw curse tablets at the riders, and some of the curse tablets had nasty things like nails on them, and they would throw these at riders, horses, and wheels. Beyond the dangers to the riders, in the 500 years of chariot racing's golden age in Rome and Constantinople, there were some times when the spectators were in danger as well. The Circus Maximus, before it was rebuilt out of stone, was very prone to catching fire and often had structural integrity issues. During Emperor Diocletian's reign in the late 200s, the Circus Maximus actually had a seating section collapse which killed 13,000 spectators. And speaking of fires, the Byzantines had severe issues with their hot-tempered spectators. In 501, the Greens ambushed the Blues in Constantinople's amphitheater and massacred 3,000 of them. In Antioch, a riot started after a victorious rider, Periphius, defected from the Blues to the Greens. Perhaps the worst riot of all, and the one that eventually led to the end of chariot racing's golden age, was the Nika riots in Constantinople. Following a hotly contested race in the Hippodrome around AD 532, some of the greens and blues got into a brawl. Justinian, holding his nose at having to kill his fellow blue fans, declared that the agitators, both blue and green, must be executed. This provoked anger from fans on both sides. The fans now joined together, turning their hot anger against the emperor. They started chanting, Nika, Nika, which means win, like Nike, which means victory. Normally, this was a cheer addressed to the charioteers, but now it became a battle cry against the emperor. For five days, the fans engaged in violence, looting, and arson. The rebuilt Hagia Sophia was burned down again, resulting in it needing to be rebuilt a third time. Justinian grew afraid and made plans to flee the city, but his wife Theodora, a daughter of the circus and a political genius, persuaded him to stay and be bold. Together they came up with a plan to quell the riots. Troops were dispatched to the Hippodrome, where they killed 30,000 of the rioting sports fans, and the circus teams were then stripped of all power. Over the next century, as the Byzantines struggled to pay for their debts, Against the Persian and Arab invaders, there simply wasn't enough money to make chariot racing lucrative again. Other events started to be held at the Hippodrome, like festivals, executions, and eventually joustings. But it finally came to an end after the Fourth Crusade, when the city was sacked by the Crusaders. Try not to cry. And that concludes our episode for today. Today I taught you about the history of chariot races, its factions, its fans, its rules, and of course the amazing prizes and terrible risks. Learning about Roman chariot races, it becomes clear how awesome they were. And one can't help but admire the courage and skill of the racers, along with the spectacle that came with the ingenious engineering and event planning. I also appreciate that it brought their nation together as a national pastime. And as a pastime, it was also used to peacefully perpetuate their religion, history, and culture for generations. My favorite part, though, is how the greens and the blues came together in friendly competition to rebuild their nation's crumbling walls. On the other hand, I think it's equally clear how chariot racing occasionally brought out the worst in people. It became a huge distraction, propaganda machine, 
time waster, and money shredder. It led to fans cheering for the deaths of athletes and other fans. Even it had fans attempting to kill athletes and other fans or burning down their city because they lost. That people were willing to be so divided, fight, and kill because of a sports team is a damning mirror of our own society today. I think there are many parallels, but to me the biggest one is this. While the Byzantine chariot teams became political parties, today our political parties have become chariot teams. Instead of people possessing their own moral compass and voting on policies and candidates that adhere to their compass, they just support candidates and policies because they're team red or team blue here in America. Often, they don't care if the policies or candidates are particularly good, they just want the other team to lose. Instead of emulating the ugly part of Roman chariot races, let's try to emulate the so cool, so awesome part. The part where we can all engage in friendly competition, admire the feats of daring and athleticism, and take pride in our teams and nation, and collectively celebrate cultural moments and pastimes without giving in to hate and division. Thank you for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a five-star review and share this with a friend. For more information on this topic, check out the sources listed in the description. I'm Doug Archway, and that's history for you.